We're continuing a series we started last week in the Beatitudes. Uh, actually, it's the, if you look at the front of your bulletin, it says that we're developing a con- common vision of the kingdom of God over the next several weeks. And we're doing that by looking at the Beatitudes. And so this morning, uh, we're going to read, I'm going to read for you because I didn't give our tech team a heads up. Just a sec. I'm going to read for you from the message translation of the Beatitudes. So if you have that handy, feel free to pull it up on your phone or in your lap. If you don't, feel free to just let this word be a word spoken to you. Okay. So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is the message translation. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions, and this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less, That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. That persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies or try to discredit you or me. (laughs) What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when this happens, give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. This is God's word for us, and God always blesses the speaking and the hearing of his word. Let's take a moment just to pray one more time. God, thank you so much for your word. And more than this word we've just read, the word made flesh, Jesus himself. Thank you that he lives in each of us who would even dare to profess faith in him and begin the journey of walking beside him. So Jesus, we ask you now uh, by your spirit to open our hearts uh, and invite you to show us places in our hearts where there is still darkness. And would you illumine those places with your light? We invite you to challenge us and encourage us as well. And we invite you to shape us for mission in this world. We know that's why we're here still, that there are people that still need to hear the good news. So, so to that end, God, just use this time of study uh, to build us up and grow us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, Martin Luther King, he, uh, he once said something that doesn't really need repeating, but that I'll say uh, that we've all heard, right? I have a dream, right? That this nation one day will rise up and, and, and live out the meaning of its true creeds, of its creeds. That we hold these truths, and he, he starts to 
recite the Declaration of uh, Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, women, and children were created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a beautiful vision, right? Uh, uh, this declaration of the, the value and the significance of every human life. doesn't matter your ethnicity, your race, your social class, men, women, children, old, young alike. We all have rights. <laughs> and yet, here's the problem. Many people, not just Americans today, but people outside of America, especially in the Western world, have, have made this quest for the last right, the right to happiness, uh, kind of our, our life's goal. In other words, the pursuit of happiness, we all heard this before, is the central theme within our culture. Uh, so we have an entire Will Smith movie about it, right? You've seen it? We have uh, magazines that are dedicated to happiness. This one, this is very poignant. This is The Atlantic from June of 2009. Think about where you were June of 2009 as your business tanked because the stock market went down. Your house value tanked. This issue... Wow. What makes us happy? It's the happiness issue. We were preoccupied in those days with happiness, and we still are. Uh, it's just this thing. It's this new cultural pastime. It's like there's entire departments of the books, bookstore dedicated to happiness. Like, go find it. Uh, Ruth Whitman, she's, a, she's written a book by the same title, The Pursuit of Happiness. She also has another book, you may have read it, called America the Anxious. How, here's the subtitle, How the Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Yeah. She says this about us. She moved to the United States from the UK a few years back for her husband's work. Here's a quote. A few months in, I was desperate for adult conversation, and so I'm sidling up to anyone and everyone, moms pushing swings next to me in the playground, the dry cleaner, the man in front of me at the line in the grocery store, <clears throat> a range of random local contacts that I scratched together from friends back in London. Oddly... As I had these conversations, the same topic came up again and again, happiness. Now, the conversations tended to fall into two broad categories, she says, the agonizing kind and the evangelical kind. So, as a compulsive overthinker, the agonizing ones feel very familiar to me. These conversations are all about questions, like, am I the right person? Am I following my passions? Am I doing what I love? What is my purpose? Am I as happy as I should be right at this moment? What about now? And now, <laughs> am I as happy as everybody else? What about Megan? That was supposed to be funny, I think. I don't know. Am I ha she seems happier than me. She looks happier than me. I mean, just look at the person next to you. They look happier. What's she doing or he doing that I'm not doing? There must be something. And now, as a Brit, she says, raised on this diet of armchair cynicism. I don't know if there's any Brits in the room. These were very familiar to me. The evangelical-style conversations, though, were newer territory. These are very American. In these, people claim to have found the answers, answers ranging from the mundane to the mind-boggling, yoga and meditation, keeping a gratitude journal. I don't know if that's you. Don't worry, it's not bad. A weekend seminar on how to unleash the power within, keeping your baby attached to your body for a minimum of 22 hours out of every 24. And most bafflingly, not the least, on the least practical level, the drinking of wolf colostrum. I will ask you if you've drunk in wolf colostrum to raise your hand. That's good. That's not good. Don't do that. So to an outsider, uh, it can sometimes feel as though this entire, our entire population, all of us, us included, have this, we have this nationwide standardized happiness exam to take, 
and everyone's frantically cramming for it every time we leave the house to get a good grade. And I'm just going to say this, we're all failing. All of us are failing. Uh, according to the World Health Organization, as well as being one of the least happy nations in the world, not just the developed world, but in the world, we are the most anxious country in the world by a wide margin. Listen to this. One-third of Americans suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. One-third, and that's growing. A 2012 report by the American Psychological Association warned, uh, warned this, that the nation is on the verge of a stress-induced public health crisis. This is their, their language, stress-induced public health crisis. So all kinds of health issues wrapped up in anxiety. Here's Whitman again. It would seem that the joy has been sucked out of American happiness. The joy has been sucked out of American happiness. How many of you, for, is that true for? Like the joy is sucked out of your happiness. Like it just, am I the only one? Maybe a few? Like I, I was doing this, it made me happy, and it's just joyless now. My work is joyless. The relationships I have are joyless. Joyless. Voting. <laughs> joyless. Whatever it is for you. Uh, and listen, I'm not saying that happiness is bad. That's not, this is not a bah humbug sermon this morning, don't worry. But I will say that our, production, our preoccupation this morning with uh, our obsession with happiness, however you want to put it, whether that's contentment or gratefulness or inner peace or however you put that, we, in that we seem to have forgotten this, that that's not all there is to life. The pursuit of happiness is not all there is, which is precisely where Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 comes in. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is an echo of Isaiah chapter 61. This declaration that, of what Jesus will be and will become. Uh, Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus actually reads when he comes into the temple in Luke 4. Listen, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to, to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives. He goes on, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's Jesus' mission statement. And God pronounces blessing on brokenheartedness, on mourning, on grief. Pursuit of happiness isn't all there is. It's good. It's okay to be happy. But it's good to be mourning, too. And so this morning, he declares that that's not all there is, that, that any of us, whether we're in grief or despair or anguish, whatever it is, that all of us experience both of those. All of us, the sorrow of loneliness and the joy of relationship, the, the happiness of winning, and then there's the Seahawks, and then the gratitude of when you know you're taken care of and loved, and then the distress of poverty, the promise of peace, the terror of war. We, we've all lived, we're all living now, and every one of us will die. It's guaranteed. So the question on the table for us this morning is how do we face sorrow or grief or brokenheartedness well? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis in his little book called The Problem of Pain. He's looking back in this story or this book on World War II and World War I and these devastating events in European history. Listen to this. He says, I did not find on the front lines or the CCS, which is like the British Secret Service, more full, I didn't find people more full of hatred or selfishness or rebellion or dishonesty in those places. You'd think you would. Very cynical people. You would think 
uh, prison, uh, death camps, Nazi, the Holocaust. You'd think that you'd be like so cynical after that, right? This is what he says. I found quite the opposite. I've seen great beauty in some who were great sufferers. I've seen men, women, and children, for the most part, grow better, not worse with advancing years. I've seen the last illness produce treasures of fortitude and meekness from the most, unpro- meekness from the most unpromising subjects. So the, the question for us is, how might we become great sufferers? How, how, what does it look like to be a great sufferer? The gospel's calling us to it. Blessed are those who mourn, who suffer, who are brokenhearted. They'll be comforted. So we're going to study two things this morning, and then we're going to practice one, okay? So the two we're going to study, in case you're taking notes, is we're going to, we're going to study two exhortations. Uh, the exhortation to embrace the blessing in brokenheartedness. There's a blessing within it. Blessed are those who mourn. We're going to study the, the exhortation to open our eyes to brokenheartedness. We have to see it. Uh, and then the third we're going to practice is this receiving the comfort of brokenheartedness. We're going to try and practice that a little bit together at the end of our time together. So first, embrace this blessing of brokenheartedness. Blessed are those who mourn. <clears throat> so what can this mean? I mean, is, this, is God a masochist? Like I talked about this last week a little bit. Is God some cosmic killjoy who's getting pleasure out of our pain? It would seem... Uh, And one can understand when Jesus hails those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One can, why Jesus hails the merciful and the pure in heart, why he hails peacemakers. Those make sense. This one is odd, isn't it? Uh, They don't, those sync up with the kingdom of God, but, but why is God cheering on grief and tears? That doesn't jive with me. So what's the blessing in brokenheartedness? And I want to return to something I said at the end of my our time together last week. I guess like a good teacher, you always review before you, right? So here's the review, in case you weren't here. And, and the reason I said this is because it's, it's meditating on this word blessed. So if you're here, this is a little review. Uh, because one commentator on the Beatitude says this, get this word blessed right, and the rest falls in place. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount, everything in Jesus' teaching falls into place. Get this word wrong, and the whole thing falls apart, totally falls apart. So Jesus keeps saying it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's trying to drill it into our minds that this is a very important thing. So to be blessed, like I said last week, it actually means to be favored or envied, okay? So people who've done great things in history were blessed. We talk about it the same way, uh, both then and now. So blessed people were people like we want to emulate and be like. For me, growing up, that was Michael Jordan. So I grew up in the 80s. And he came into his own. He had that story, you know, got cut from his freshman basketball team, North Carolina, all that stuff. And I was a terrible basketball player. I played ninth grade basketball. I won't tell you the whole story. So I decided, well, I want to be like Mike, you know, remember Spike Lee and all that. So I covered my room in Michael Jordan posters. This was after I had Madonna posters on the walls. So it was a little more socially acceptable. I bought... My first pair of Michael Jordans after I got some Christmas money for like a hundred bucks back in the day. And then I bought the next pair and the next pair. I mean, I had the Wheaties box. I still have it all uh, in my parents' basement, which is where it belongs. So blessed people are people that we want to be like and emulate. I wanted to be like Mike. And maybe you've had a hero, a teacher, a parent, you know, a figure, a sports figure. I don't know. And in the biblical narrative, these are people like David and Joshua and Abraham and Moses. People who did great things for God, 
people who are enviable. We want to be like them, Hebrews 11 and 12, right? And so we envy them. They do heroic things. We want to strive to emulate them. Now, this is true if you read the story of God until you get to the Beatitudes. They've done great things, the blessed. And all of a sudden, Jesus offers this profile of a very different sort of hero. Blessed is the one, let's put it in the singular, who's poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who is mourning. Blessed is the one who is meek. Blessed is the one who is merciful. Blessed is the one who is persecuted. I mean, one who mourns. Well, it's just, this is a strange hero. Like, not the kind of hero you put posters on your wall of. You know, like, that guy, yeah, he was killed. It's awesome. I want to be like him. No, that's not the way we tick. Uh, and do you see the point here? This is not an ordinary hero, Michael Jordan, or any person you've ever tried to emulate. Not a hero we'd want to be like. I mean, how many of you have spent time, let me ask a little side question here, daydreaming about being poor? Like, that's Luke's version of this, blessed are the poor. He doesn't put the poor in spirit. We love the spiritualized version of Matthew. How many of you have ever thought in your quiet time, man, wouldn't it be awesome to be more poor? None of us. Merciful, maybe. Peacemaker. Well, that'd be a good one. We think about, man, God, I want to get that promotion. I want that relationship. I want whatever that next thing is. Heal me, you know. And Jesus says, no, this is what I want to invite you to be. That's not the normal focus of our daydreams, which is just the point. (laughs) Jesus is describing no hero that we typically want to emulate. The human heart doesn't go that direction. The kind of hero that's almost impossible to even try and be. You cannot do that. It's the, it's just, it will, it will, we will die. I mean, if you really pray to be persecuted. <laughs> so here's the point. Before the Beatitudes describe you or me, they're describing Jesus. Remember what Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, and there is code for the whole Bible. I have not come to abolish those. I've come to do what? To fulfill them. And you break that word up, and it literally means to fill them full, to give them their fullest meaning, to be them. I have come to be these things. He is the law. He is the prophets in a human form, a human body. He is them. (laughs) Jesus is the true hero, okay? And he's the one the Beatitudes speak of. So they're not these ethical demands that God's putting on our lives. You've got to do this if you want to be like Jesus. They're just signs and foretastes and promises of the kingdom of God in our world. When you see peace, that's Jesus. When you see mercy, that's Jesus. When you see people who suffer and are poor, well, that's Jesus. That's a sign of Jesus. He's present. Pay attention. When you see it in your life, when you're mourning you're seeing Jesus, just a little bit of Jesus. The su- and he, listen to this. He's the world's greatest sufferer, was, is, and will always be. Suffered perfectly. That's what the Bible tells us. He's the sufferer par excellence. So have you thought about this? When you look at the life of Jesus, that one thing we find is that we have no record anywhere in any of his life of having laughed. He didn't laugh. We are told that he was angry. Remember the whole moneylenders thing? That he, was, he suffered from hunger and thirst. That he wept. Remember the tears of blood? That he had deep, profound compassion. He was indignant. He was depressed. He felt agony, despair. 
But there's actually no record in the Gospels, and I invite you to try and read it. He doesn't, he has not laughed. That whole laughing Jesus poster, that's anachronistic. Now, I, I know an argument from silence is a dangerous argument. He probably laughed. <laughs> I also think, it, but I think it's a detail worth paying attention to. See, in our quest to be like Jesus and to have Jesus express himself through us, that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's live your life through me, Jesus. Express yourself through me. We, just, we often overlook the depth of emotion that Jesus felt. Most of our music on Sundays, celebration, praise, and it's all good. <laughs> Very little lament. And what, what you find Jesus doing on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, it's a psalm of lament, a psalm of anguish. It's one of his songs. He probably learned it as a child. And that's what he sings. Jesus re- and so this is all to say, Jesus reveals to us what it means to be fully human and made in God's image. And his emotions, the depth of them, the broadest spectrum of them, which includes joy, by the way. Don't worry, it's not bad. His, all of his emotions reflect the image of God without any deficiency or distortion, okay? And so when we compare our emotional lives to his, just think of your emotions. Uh, we probably become aware of our need for transformation, because we often set all those negative emotions, anger, you know, anxiety, uh, ang- uh, hatred, uh, more like sadness. We set those aside. We say, no, 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 no. Joy, happiness, pleasure. Oh, good. That's good. And, and what God is saying is to be fully human and fully alive is to embrace, be embraced in our, by him in our joy as well as our grief. Uh, in our times of exhilaration as well as our times of loss, in our times of pleasure and intimacy as well as loneliness and despair. God's in all of that because Jesus was too. Uh, And again, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be happy that God, like I love to laugh, I love to tell a good dad joke. I think it's time for one. So (laughs) what does an annoying pepper do? An annoying pepper do? This is a total throwaway, but you guys are like, come on. What does an annoying pepper do? It gets jalapeno face. Okay, good. Get, got the room back here. I got many more where that came from. So God wants us in our discipleship journey to learn about the universal human experience of suffering. This is the point here. Grief, despair, however you talk about it. And then how to engage that well. Okay? And he does so not by explaining it to us. Didn't give us a book. Here's a little one-on-one on suffering. He lived it. He did it. Uh, he is the God of the sufferers. That's the story of Jesus. And so that's the blessing in suffering. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus mourned. He's the hero. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to any place in his life. See Jesus as the Son of God who so radically identifies with his people. He, he yoked himself to us in life and death, joy and grief. He did that so we could do it as well, Okay. So look to him. That's the first thing we need to learn. The second exhortation is this. Now open your eyes to grief or to brokenheartedness. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. By the way, the joy set before Jesus was you, Aaron, was you, Dan, was you, Sean, was any, all of us. That's the joy set before Jesus. And even though that was said before him, you know what? He said, I'm going to go to the cross for that, for each of you. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he embraced grief, he allowed his heart to be broken. He did it. And God says this in Philippians 2 as well. Have this mind in you that was in Christ, who did not count equality with God as something he should grasp onto, but he made himself nothing, emptied himself, took the form of a servant, became obedient to death. See, we're invited to open our eyes to the grief of God, okay? And there's so many examples of this in the Gospels, like of the suffering of Jesus. Uh, I named the cross, but there's one I think that's the most instructive, and you know this story in John chapter 11. This is the raising of his friend Lazarus, right? And you know this story. Jesus receives this report uh, that Lazarus, a close friend, is on his deathbed, that he's suffering from some undisclosed illness. And so everybody knows Jesus is this profound healer, healer, so they invite Jesus to Lazarus' home to heal him. And along the way, if you know the story, Lazarus dies. And so in this unfolding narrative, Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, and they're full of grief, as you'd expect, and they're close friends of Jesus. Uh, they, they confront Jesus. It's a very human story. They're mad at Jesus. Like, think about that. They're frustrated that he delayed or something and that because of that, Lazarus died. And so, as we all know, Jesus gets to their hometown, Bethany, by the way, (laughs) the village where Lazarus and Mary and Martha call home, see Mary weeping inconsolably. She is on the ground and sees this community gathered around her also weeping. Just a huge mourning, mourning, not mourning like daytime, but you know what I'm saying, and then we're told this in John eleven thirty three that Jesus, Jesus was so deeply moved when he saw that scene and greatly troubled. I'm going to come back to that word. That in John eleven thirty five, what's the verse? Jesus wept. Now, why did Jesus weep? Think about it. I was talking to some friends about this this week. Most of us snapped to the fact that Lazarus died. That's his friend. You and I would cry when we lose friends, right? And perhaps that's, that's a very human response to death. But if you know what this word weeping means, especially in the context of the verse before, where he's deeply moved and greatly troubled, literally it means Jesus was indignant. His weeping tears are not tears of necessarily grief, but anger. See, he's, he's not, and he's not upset that they're crying, like, why are you crying? Come on. You know, kind of man up. He's not even upset that they're annoyed with him, like, you know, as if... You know, hey, like at the changing of water into wine, you know, mother, get away from, you know, like, he's not, he's not upset at that. He's mad at the fact that sin has won the day, at least for now. Death has a victory. Uh, which is to say, this grief he's experiencing, he knows what the world could be, what the world should be, and what it would one day be, and, and that the world was just far from that. It was far from that. Because he, and because he saw this, what the world ought to be, what he, and he saw what was, he could see that, he mourned and he wept. You might say that Jesus, if you put it in Martin Luther King's words that we saw, was just profoundly dissatisfied. He had a holy dissatisfaction. He was just filled with this sense of, ugh, this should not happen. Why, God? Uh, as well as this longing for them to be the way they were they ought to be. A longing for the new heavens, a longing for the new earth. That's what caused Jesus to weep. Listen to this. 
This is from a book that I've shared before uh, by this guy, Nicholas Waltersdorf. It's, if you need a book, and I, I know I kind of put that whole thing down, <laughs> but if you need a book on loss or grieving, this is, I, this is the book I'd give you. It's amazing. It, not, if, not just even if you lost somebody like through death. He lost his son Eric in a mountaineering accident one day. But if you just want to, I mean, like right now, if you're going through a hard time, awesome. You don't read it just cover to cover. You read it in little snippets. And here's a snippet. He's reflecting on this beatitude. And he asks the question, who are the mourners? And he said, the mourners are those who've caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out in tears when confronted with its absence. This is why Jesus wept. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there's no one blind, and who ache whenever they see someone unseeing. This is why Jesus wept. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one hungry and who ache whenever they see someone starving. This is why Jesus wept. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one falsely accused and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. This is why Jesus wept. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm, there is no one who fails to see God and who ache when they see someone unbelieving. This is why Jesus wept. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one who ever suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beat down. This is why Jesus wept. These are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there's neither death nor tears and who ache when they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. Jesus was an aching visionary. And such people Jesus blesses. He hails them. He applauds them. He salutes them. He gives them the promise of the new day for whose absence their ache will come. The Stoics, he says, uh, said, be calm. Be calm and carry on as they put on the coffee cups, right? Disengage. Neither laugh nor weep. And here's what Jesus says. Weep. Weep with all your might. Be open to the wounds of the world. Mourn humanity's mourning. Weep over humanity's weeping. Be wounded by humanity's woundedness. Be in agony over humanity's agony. But do so in the cheer that the day of peace is coming. This is why Jesus wept. He's inviting us to see the world that should be and will be and to long for it with all of our being, every fiber of our soul. Now, how might this apply to our lives? Uh, it's important to note that, that disciples, and if you look at Romans chapter 12, for example, are, be, are people who are transformed the, for the remo- through the renewal of their minds. So it's a, we need to allow Jesus to sat- so saturate our minds, our eyes, the way we see the world, that we catch a clear vision of God's plans and desires. So the world that God had in mind that Waltersdorf talks about. Uh, and, and so we, we're, we're being invited through this blessing of mourning to begin seeing both the, through perfect union with God. God, fill my life. Express yourself through me so I might see it as you do. That he would create a world where there's shalom and peace and no sickness, no racism, all these things. And, and, and delight, disciples' lives, when we become saturated with that vision, here's the deal. When our heart becomes God's heart, <laughs> when we see the world God desires, and this vision begins to govern our lives, and we begin to align our lives with God's. The promise is 
not pie in the sky by and by, uh, but a longing deep within us for God to make those things happen today. This is what God means when he says, I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. It has to mean the gospel is intended to make you more tenderhearted, not less. Uh, The gospel is meant to cause you to weep. And I'll just say this, especially to the guys. We don't weep in our culture. It's not cool to weep. I'll say for the men and the women and the children. Like we're told and we're taught from birth, like, be strong, you know? Uh, we, we, crying is for babies. Don't cry. It's so deeply ingrained in us, and that's the stuff of the Stoics, and that's not the gospel. The God, God's people, men, women, children, young, old alike, if we don't have room in our gatherings to lament and celebrate, to weep as well as laugh in our daily lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, if we don't have space for that, if we don't have room to declare our own dissatisfaction, uh, tears of indignation, that means that we're not truly allowing the depth of the gospel to penetrate our hearts. You're carrying around a heart of stone. And Jesus says, I want to rip that out and give you a heart of flesh. If you don't find yourself more able to weep because of Jesus, then the gospel hasn't sunk in. It just hasn't. If you're not troubled by what you're seeing out there in the world, uh, I'd ask yourself, Jesus, why? Why am I not troubled? So are you troubled today? Are you troubled by all the political turmoil? Are you troubled by the besetting sin in your life, an addiction, a broken relationship? Are you troubled by the environmental degradation, the world we're leaving to our kids? You know? Are you troubled by this intense and ever bleak conversation around race? I'm troubled. And here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are troubled. Blessed are the brokenhearted, for they will receive comfort. To see Jesus as the one who was broken so we could be made whole, that's the gospel. And then engage the suffering of the world, that's the gospel. And then receive the comfort that God offers in that. And so here's the practice. Blessed are the brokenhearted, they'll receive comfort. I want to invite us to practice this. I love that message translation. Let me read it again. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. The reason I like that, to receive comfort is not just this abstract promise like comfort, comfort, comfort. It's not, that's not what this is. It's, it's a beloved person. Uh, Peterson gets it just right. The Greek word that Jesus uses is this word perikaleo. Really significant. Blessed are the ones who mourn. They will be comforted. Perikaleo. And the reason that's important is the same word Jesus uses for the the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 14, he's about to die, and he says to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you a helper, another helper. I'm going away. I'm going to die. And that helper is going to be with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit. And the word he uses for helper is the paraclete. I'm going to give you a helper, comforter. He does that again in John chapter 15, again in John chapter 16. And every time Jesus is not speaking about this abstract source of consolation, he's talking about himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
the one who's going to comfort us. And so what this means for us, it's not enough to just to see the grief and the brokenness of the world. It's not even enough just to weep for that. That's not enough. Here's the next step. We need to be able to come alongside one another in those times. When you begin to see the world that God intended, or you see someone <laughs> broken because of the, the brokenness of this world, what the gospel's saying is uh, don't come alongside and try to explain that and fix it. The box of tissues, leave them at home. Uh, instead, simply just agree with that person. This is not what you were intended for. This is not the whole story. I stand with you in it. This is, and be, we are not alone. That's what Jesus means when he says, comfort for the brokenhearted. That within the kingdom of God, there are people so filled with the presence of Christ that they're able to enter into each other's grief and embrace each other. Now, of course, you know the scene from Good Bull Hunting. Remember this? Matthew Damon's character. I don't even know his name. He's in counseling, you know, for, for Will. Duh. I never knew that, actually. So, good to know. So, anyway, uh, there's Robin Williams' character. What's his name? Mmm. Gotcha. No, kidding. So Rob Moon's character is this therapist, Matt Damon's character, Will, uh, sitting in the counseling office, and they've, and they've been through it a lot. There's deni- all the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, all of them, until he gets to acceptance. Little plan words here. Um, he cannot believe that there's someone else who would stand with him in his grief and his shame. Remember this? And this is where Rob Moon's character looks at him and says, hey, Will, it's not your fault. And you remember what Will says. I won't repeat it, but it's some colorful language. And he keeps pressing in. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. That's what this means. That's the comfort and grief. This deep solidarity in the midst of deep sorrow, which is radical identification with each other. Saying to each other, it's not your fault. It's not the end of the story. Our God is with us. Our God is for us. That's the comfort and grief. So might we be that for each other? That's my invitation for us. Uh, both great sufferers as well as great comforters. That's what I want our church to be. And so today, to that end, I want to invite Jenny up to invite us uh, to respond.